0: And please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. More of you have asked about how this ending of Mark's Gospel will be handled than any other passage that I can remember. And from a personal investment of time, I have poured as much prayer, study, and concern into this passage as any that I have preached. Uh, Much of that is because, as has been mentioned, it was very encouraging, of of the great value that we have found in the Gospel of Mark. It's a tremendous book that God has given us. What we have witnessed and learned through the last many months, and I appreciate Tom's specificity on that, uh, what we have learned as we have traveled with Christ in this book has been amazing, who He is, what He has done, this God that we serve. The Gospel of Mark, as well as the rest of God's Word, is an invaluable gift. As we begin this morning, I want to present some of the unequaled evidence believers have for confidence that this Bible that we have is the Word of God. Our church statement of faith begins with this statement. We believe in the full and verbal inspiration of the entire Old Testament and New Testament as being in themselves in their original documents the complete Word of God. We also believe that the Old and New Testaments are infallible and inerrant, giving the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. Have you ever wondered why we would say such a thing? Have you You ever, has anyone here been challenged about why you believe? Why you believe this English copy of an ancient document is actually the word of God, word from God? If you haven't, you will be, unless you hide your face as a a secret disciple. You will have to face that at some time, and what would you say? How would you respond to that? Well, I would suggest that you would begin with what Scripture says of itself. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17, we read, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, many of your versions will say, inspired by God, but the word is theonoustos. Anostos, that means breathed by God. It is exhaled by God through the men of God. And that leads us to here where it says the words that they wrote were breathed out by God. And Second Peter 1 says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That breathing forth of God through men of God by His Holy Spirit moved them to write the original autographs, we call them, the first original versions of the Scriptures as men like Mark, Peter, John, Paul wrote the Word of God. Now, some of you are probably thinking that is kind of circular that's self-authenticating and it is such a self-authenticating claim may be and is written in other religious documents besides the Bible but the ontological fact that the Bible is God's word places it in authority to declare this it will not become God's word the inerrant and sufficient authority over all the universe only if man discovers or agrees that it is. That would give man authority over Scripture to grant authority to Scripture. Man does not have that place. However, whether man agrees that the Bible is God's authoritative word or discovers that it is or obeys it as it is does not change for one moment the reality that it is God's authoritative word. It needs no validating authority. It simply is the authority that God has given. But, because it is living and powerful, from Hebrews 4, it confirms its authority on a supernatural level far superior to any document that has ever existed. Which leads to the Bible's confirmation through fulfilled prophecy. In the Gospel of Mark alone, since that's the most fresh on our minds, we have witnessed how prophecy after prophecy from the Old Testament was fulfilled in the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Prophecies from sections of Scripture like Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Zechariah 12, and many others, they were fulfilled in amazing and intricate detail. The same could easily be seen in the Old Testament prophecies regarding the birth and life accounts of Jesus. They come to full fruition through the Gospels. That Messiah the Messiah could and would be conceived in a virgin's womb, born in Bethlehem, come out of Egypt and be called a Nazarene. These are all part of the complex yet clear Old Testament messianic prophecies. Fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. It's amazing what we have. The scriptures when penned for the first time by holy men of God. Through whom the Holy Spirit moved. Are the word of God. These are the original autographs. But. What about the reliability of the written text. That you have in your lap or in your hands. We must admit. That we do not have nor does there appear to even exist. A single original manuscript that was written by the original writers of Scripture. We just don't have those. We also realize that the first writings of Scripture were either in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, but not in the language that we are reading them from today in English. Is it authentic? Is it a reliable rendering of what God spoke through His men centuries ago? And I ask these questions because I feel it's better to ask these questions and study them here than when someone confronts you at Thanksgiving or at some sort of an activity or when you're trying to share the gospel and they say, Well, what about this? What about that? And, and you say, th- Well, I never thought about that. And your faith may be shaken and they may gain no benefit From that encounter. So we're going to look at some of these. For that blessing. For that purpose. I am very confident. That it is. What it says. The word of God. A fellow by the name of Bruce. Says there is no body of ancient literature. In the world. Which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation. As the New Testament. MacArthur says no ancient book. Has been better preserved. Through the centuries. Than the Bible. How can we say that? That's quite a claim. Well, in the annals of world history, we have books such as Herodotus's History. Of that, we have eight surviving manuscripts in the entire world, only eight. And these manuscripts' copies were made 1,300 years after Herodotus, after the original writings, 1,300 years later. And only eight of them. Caesar's Gallic Wars. There are actually ten copies that exist. The closest to the non-existent original. Was written a thousand years later. Thucydides. History of the Peloponnesian War. We have eight copies. All more than 1300 years. Subsequent to the original. And Homer's Iliad. Well known to many of us. Originally written by Homer in the 8th century B.C. There are 643 copies. The earliest manuscript copy we have, however, was written in A.D. 1300. 2,000 years after the original Iliad. You see the space of time, the few documents. Let me tell you this about the New Testament. On the other hand, the New Testament has more than 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts including pieces as small as a little postage stamp to entire New Testaments. And here are just a few of those. Codex Sinaiticus. Now, Codex simply means it is a bound book rather than a rolled scroll. It is a bound book, the Codex Sinaiticus. It was written in the middle 4th century. That would be sometime like around 350 A.D. Perhaps 300 or less years after the original. It includes almost all of the Old and New Testament. And it was discovered in 1859 at the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai. Codex Vaticanus. It holds about half of the Old Testament books and all of the New Testament. It was written in the second half of the fourth century. Maybe we would say around 375 A.D. Vaticanus was found in the Vatican Library in 1475. Somebody came upon it in the library. And nobody knows when it was placed in there or who placed it there. There are also a large number of what we call papyri documents. Papyri is similar to paper. It is made from the leaves of the papyrus water plant which grows along the Nile River in the Middle East, which would make sense where many of these documents were first written. Papyrus 52, or P-52 as it is called, is much smaller than Vaticanus or Sinaiticus. It contains part of the Gospel of John and dates from 100 to 150 AD, very nearly the time when John actually first wrote the original copy of the Gospel of John. The Bodmer papyri includes the Gospels of John and Luke and was copied between AD 175 and 225. You see how close these are? Chester Beatty Papyri holds the four Gospels in the Book of Acts and was copied in the 8200s. Beyond that, we have what are called the, pri, the, me, the pre-Nicene Fathers. These are writings from church fathers that were written in about the 8325. In the prolific writings of these men, there are 32,000 references and quotes from the New Testament when you take all of those references and quotations and bring them together and piece them in order, you have almost the entire New Testament in complete agreement with what we find in the Greek manuscripts. There are many, many men and women who we call textual critics or experts, translators that have poured over these thousands, tens of thousands of documents for more than centuries comparing, and analyzing them, trying to ensure that the Word of God was faithfully transmitted to every generation of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Yet, as many of us know and as we support in ministries, there are many nations, many people groups that still do not have the Word of God translated into their own language. We are extremely blessed. Now, that's a very brief summary of of the supporting textual evidence which confirms that indeed we have in our hands an actual and accurate translation of the original God-breathed Word of God. There is a story told of some of the monk copyists that actually would sit down to copy this on before we had the printing presses. And after each word, they would put the pen down, they would go take a bath, And come back. So important and weighty was their job. The word of God. Trying to do it with a pure and clean heart. Symbolically they took that much time and effort. As they worked their way through the scriptures. But for today. What does that have to do. With finishing the book of Mark. The problem that we are considering. Is where does the gospel of Mark actually end. Was chapter 16, 9 through 20 actually written by John Mark or was it not? And I will tell you there is no overwhelming consensus and there's a great deal of evidence in both directions. If I were to tell you men that, that sit strongly on each side of those, you would know most of them quite well and listen to them. There are three general possibilities regarding the ending of Mark. The first is that Mark ends abruptly. At Mark chapter 16 verse 8. The second is that Mark continues with a longer ending. From verses 9 through 20. Praise God I see many of you looking down in your scriptures now. And that's what we want to be doing. That's where we should be. And the third is Mark continues but with a much shorter ending of just a few sentences. Now there are a few other ideas out there. But these are the three main ones by far. The first one. Mark ends abruptly. At Mark 16.8. The verse reads. Verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. For they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. None of the gospels end that way. Mark. It is alleged by some. Ended at that point. And there is weighty manuscript evidence. That this is a point where the spirit inspired record from Mark does end. Some of the earliest manuscripts, like the Codices Codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, end at verse 8. Several additional early manuscript copies from other languages, such as Syriac, Sahetic, and Coptic, end there. There is only a very small amount of papyri documentation to Mark, very small. But papyri 45 contains Mark, but does not have any of the last chapter. But, that's not a slam dunk by any means. As one of the proponents, even of the abrupt ending, admits, many of the papyri documents of other books of the Bible also do not contain the last chapter. When you have at least 5,000 to 6,000, some that you have in there do not have the last chapter. The fact is that the last chapter is the one most in danger to be lost or torn off or somehow be damaged. Several ancient church leaders like Eusebius, Jerome, Origen, Cyprian, appear to weigh in favor of an ending at verse 8. There just was a period of time there where it did not seem to exist. Those arguments are called external evidence. But one might ask this question, well, why would, why would it end there? Why would Mark end at verse 8? Well, possibility of Persecution. Perhaps persecution erupted and Mark's life was suddenly in turmoil and he was never able to get back to complete it. Perhaps the ending was torn out or it was lost. And this is not entirely unheard of as I mentioned earlier from other Greek manuscripts. And if a piece of the original were to be lost in some way it could very easily be the very end of the parchment. This also could be a result of persecution or being on the run. A third... Some have proposed that it was Mark's intention that it end like this. Now think about Mark. How did he begin the gospel? Just as he began by plunging into the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We had John preaching at the Jordan River. And Jesus in his early 30s approaching John for baptism. That's where his gospel starts. There is no mention of Jesus' birth like Luke and Matthew have. Or is there any mention of a pre-existent from eternity? As John eloquently writes, Could it be that Mark intended his gospel to end in a similar style? Just like he started. Here's a second perspective. That Mark continues with a longer ending, which are verses 9 through 20. Now most of your Bibles, most of your Bibles include the longer ending. In fact probably all of them do here there are very few that do not and many of your Bibles will have verse 9 through 20 introduced and ended with brackets in some versions verses 9 through 20 are written in in italics and the footnotes or sidebars of many of the editions will read something like this some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 9 through 20 Now, while this ending is missing in some significant early manuscripts like Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, it actually is contained in the great majority of early Greek manuscripts. In fact, one writer admits that more than 99% of the existing Greek manuscripts contain this longer ending of Mark. In other words, there are massively more early manuscripts that contain this longer ending or portion of it than those that stop abruptly at verse 8. But, you must consider that being in the majority of anything does not ensure that you are right. You think of our forefathers who went into the promised land. The twelve spies and they came back and 10 out of the 12 said, We're not going to make it. Let's don't do it. Two didn't. The two were right. The majority does not necessarily mean that you're right. Because of the timing of a particular manuscript or the location where it was written, there may have been persecution and very limited opportunity to distribute it so that an excellent copy may not have been able to see the light of day. At the same time, A manuscript not so carefully copied may have been in a time and a place where the public readily received and affirmed Christianity and therefore distributed it and copied it all the more. We have that in the change of of where Christianity is and throughout history. A majority of the more recognized preachers the last several decades have embraced the abrupt ending of Mark at verse 8. But there are several who do not. And some of these Bible scholars have given very effective arguments for Mark's longer ending. Interestingly, one of the stronger critics of the longer ending of Mark includes in their study Bible sidebar this comment. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. He goes on, while for the most part summarizing truths taught elsewhere in Scripture, verses 16, 9 through 20, should always be compared with the rest of Scripture, and no doctrine should be formulated based solely on them. Since, in spite of all these considerations of the likely unreliability of this section, it is possible to be wrong, so it is good to consider the meaning of this passage and leave it in the text. This particular preacher also includes quotations of the text that he questions in his Bible study literature and has reproduced it in his own version of, of the Scriptures. So I, I, you may be as sitting there and thinking, well, where do we go? The longer ending of Mark has been challenged, not only on the basis of external evidence that we've looked at, but also what we call internal. Internal evidence would be things like style or vocabulary or syntax Syntax and grammar. Things like this. There are 18 words. And there, aren't, there are 18 words that occur. In the last 12 verses of Mark. That never appear. In the vocabulary of Mark. In the first 15 and a half chapters. He uses 18 words that he's never used. So far to that point. Two of the words that Mark continually begins. His major sections. De. Or now. Or straightway. And the word I or and, which is chi, these two words make up almost all of Mark's beginnings of major sections and smaller sections. But in the last 12 verses, that drops off dramatically. And if some of you are looking at your scriptures and saying, well, I see and here and and here and and here, you may, but that is not the word "kai." It's a different word for and. But "kai" is repeated over and over again in the first 15 and a half chapters. Another internal question is Mary Magdalene is introduced in chapter 16 verse 9 the beginning of this section and does that seem a little bit odd as she's introduced as the one having seven demons cast out of her now that would not seem odd except she's already been introduced to us by Mark and has appeared in three times in verses in 16 in the last part of chapter 15 so why does this introduce her and then describe There may be reasons. And individually, none of these would dispel it. But some of the scholars say collectively, they make them question. And these things are admittedly subjective, say many of the critics from both sides of this disagreement. Individually, they may not say much, but collectively, they raise questions. And the last option is, Mark continues with a short ending. And that ending, some of your Bibles don't have that, it reads, But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now there is far less manuscript evidence for this. And it appears in far fewer publications of scripture. It does not seem necessary to give it nearly as much recognition, so I didn't. And we won't really spend much time there. So where do we go with Mark chapter 16. Verses 9 through 20. Understand please. That neither side is saying. Get rid of this portion of the word of God. The question is whether the longer ending. Legitimately is part of the Holy Spirit. Inspired gospel of Mark. And one might quickly say. Well to cut something out of the word of God. Would be heretical. It would would be damning. And if someone intentionally does that, you were right. So you might drift and say, so let's keep it. But if we look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, we can't get out that way either, for it says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. So this is sobering. One source summed it up well saying this, There are varying theories on how these ancient texts should be viewed by modern scholars. On one hand, some believe that the most ancient reading should be followed, as it is closest in time to the original. On the other hand, some believe that the majority should rule, since there are thousands of ancient manuscripts that believe we should give precedence to the reading that is represented by the most documents. One issue that is sometimes raised against the majority viewpoint is that many of those documents were written very late, 900 to 1500 years later. The answer to this is that many of the early papyrus fragments support the majority reading. Additionally, the question has been raised, if Vaticanus and Sinaiticus represent the original reading of the text, why are there so few manuscripts That follow their lead. If they were valued by the early church. You would expect to find many copies made from them. Covering a wide period of history. What we actually find. Are few early manuscripts. Which agree with them. But then a disappearance. Of the text type as we progress through history. We're about ready to dig into the verses this morning. I do want to say if you ask. Is there an official position by the elders on this verse? My answer is no, there is not. And if you were to say, is there a church official position on verses 9 through 20, we, we have not crafted that. My own conscience sits this way at this time. And, and I could say, well, I've read so many of these sources. Well, I haven't read nearly as many sources as all of the experts on both sides of the issue. And I never will. It is a serious issue for me. I've ordered two more books upon this that I want to get into it and dig, because it, I'm very hungry to understand it. But I will say because Mark 16,9 through 20, is unquestionably early, and it is undeniably exists in 99 percent of the manuscripts, and has been viewed as biblical canon throughout the greater portion of Christian history. I personally will hold it as part of the scriptures from God's hand but I do not insist that it was written by Mark I don't know let me tell you this we do not lose any fundamental truth of scripture if Mark 169 9-20 is not accepted nor do we add or alter those truths if it is accepted and we're going to look at that here very quickly Those who have in the past and those who presently preach these scriptures with confidence they are from the original hand of Mark are not in danger of heresy because of that, nor do I think that they are right to criticize those who choose not to agree with them as being heretics. This study has really intrigued me. I do not take it lightly. Tomorrow, I will email to the church to the church list I have, a link to a very insightful video that many of you have seen. It's from Bo- a man by the name of Bodie Bacham. And it's titled, Why I Choose to Believe the Bible. You will find it fascinating and helpful. I hope you will take time to look at that. Having said that, I hope that there are still some of you who are ready to look quickly at the longer ending of Mark chapter 16. There are at least three things we will observe in this account. It's an account of the testimonies of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And you will see as we go through this, everything that we will look here will be paralleled in other Gospels or in the book of Acts. First of all, we will see the unbelief of the testimony, the proclaiming of the testimony, secondly, and thirdly, establishing the testimony of the risen Savior, Jesus. First of all, unbelief of the testimony. Verses 9 through 14. And here we begin in verses 9 through 11. The testimony of a woman named Mary. The testimony of Mary. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Out of whom he had cast seven demons. In verses 9 through 14. Now you will witness a pattern of three subjects. Repeated three times. Appeared. Reported. Or rebuked. And unbelief. Appeared reported or rebuked and unbelief we begin with the appearance when this is important it's on the first day of the week why why did he rise on the first day of the week why not the second or the third day why not take four or five days to really let it sink into his disciples and the followers that he was quite dead on the other hand why not take one day and show that death could not hold him down For more than a day. Well here's why. Because when confronted by some of the scribes and Pharisees. Who said to Jesus. Teacher we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered and said to them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And later in Matthew chapter 16. We have this time the Pharisees and Sadducees again testing Jesus. And they ask him again to show them a sign from heaven. And he says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Remember, Jewish days are counted from 6 p.m. 24 hours to 6 p.m. the next afternoon or evening. Jesus was buried in that tomb before 6 p.m. on Friday. So he is buried that day at that time. Jesus remained in that grave. I believe the very minimum time needed to fulfill the three day prophecy. He was in that tomb from the closing of the day on Friday to the very first part of the day, Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Friday, late and just barely in the tomb. Saturday, all day. And Sunday, it says early, just barely on Sunday, then out. Nevertheless, from a Jewish standpoint of chronology, it was a three-day just as he had prophesied. Then we look at to whom did he appear. And I'd love to see how Jesus does this. Who was the first to see Jesus glorified? Who would have this great privilege to proclaim he is risen for the very first time? Was it the disciple whom Jesus loved? John? who seemed to be the closest to Jesus and was the most loyal of any of the twelve during his arrest and crucifixion? No, was it, was it Peter? The one who correctly understood Jesus to be the Son of God. Jesus praised him and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Or was it Joseph of Arimathea? Comes out of, the, out of the background here. He has boldly come out of the wicked Sanhedrin council. He's left it behind. He's put all on the altar. And he takes Jesus' body down off that cross. And places it in his own tomb. No, it was none of these. It was Mary Magdalene. A woman from a little fishing village. On the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. This Mary before knowing Jesus was a horridly broken woman who was filled with multiple demons. Now Jesus said of a similar woman who had spent much of her life under the grip of sin and darkness, He said to this woman, that woman, Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And I think that's a reflection of the Mary we're looking here. Not only had Mary Magdalene been forgiven much and delivered from much the grasp of seven demons, but her much love for Jesus. It was demonstrated. It was demonstrated as she followed him from Galilee to Jerusalem, as she stood nearby as he was crucified, as she carefully watched as he was put in the tomb, and how she returned at the first possible moment. To give honor to his burial. Says so she went out and told those who had been with him. As they mourned and wept. She reported, she told, she obeyed Christ. Just as she was commanded earlier. In the gospel of Mark chapter 16. She said go tell Peter and the disciples. She does that. And Jesus has prophesied this, mo- this moment that would come for the disciples. In Joshua 16 Excuse me. John 16. Verses 19 through 20. We read here. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them. Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again in a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly I say to you. That you will weep. And lament. But the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned Into joy. They had lost their dearest friend. They had lost their leader. Their protector. They had lost hope. Future was gone. It says. And when they heard that he was alive. And had been seen by her. They did not believe. Unbelief. Unbelief. Their great sin here. The failure on the part of these followers however. Was not their unbelief of Mary Magdalene. They did not believe Jesus. Had he not already told them several times. That he would do exactly. What Mary Magdalene said she had seen. They did not believe Mary. Because they did not believe Jesus. And why did they not believe? Well. it was partly because. They knew that no one survives crucifixion. And Jesus was most certainly dead secondly because it was a woman in those days women's testimony was almost worthless and here Jesus had returned and taken on the testimony of a woman this doesn't make sense and maybe it was because it was Mary a woman who had been possessed by seven demons was she losing it all now after all this stress and sorrow Was she falling back into some of the things she'd known before? The question comes in our minds, were they unable to believe or did they choose not to believe? Verse 11 here simply tells us they did not believe. But our answer will come in three verses. Verse 12, we have the testimony of the men. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. The second appearance. Appearance. And this time in another form. It's the word heteromorphae. It means different or other shape or form. He came in a form that, that they had not seen. And this is paralleled in Luke chapter 24. There we read. Now behold two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. Which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned. That Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained. So they did not know him. He was in some other form. Or in some way the eyes were unable to capture his form. And understand this was Jesus. In John 20 verse 14. We have Mary and the gardener. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She did not recognize him. And the report was told, These two men went to the rest. Presumably the disciples and the followers. But again, what is the result? Again, it's unbelief. They did not believe them either. Why not? Well, these are just two guys. These are not part of of the disciples. Why would Jesus do that? They're not from Galilee. And with the defection of Judas, the remaining men were from Galilee. They were Galileans. Why would Jesus be walking on a road outside of the city of Jerusalem and end up in a little dump like Emmaus? Makes no sense. That can't be true. And Jesus choosing to break bread first with with these guys? No, it's impossible. But then verse 14. Later he appeared to the leaven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Testimony this time of the risen Jesus. The third appearance. Jesus appears again. And this time there is no report. There is a rebuke. Uh, What we would call a strong chewing out. Why? Because they were faithless. And not just faithless at this moment. They had been faithless when he was arrested. They were faithless. When he was crucified. They were faithless. When he was buried. And they had no faith in him. Regarding the resurrection. That he had carefully taught them. So many times. They were empty. Of any faith. And it says. Also because of their. And it's the word. Sclerocardio. And it's two words. Scleros. And that sounds like. Sclerosis. A hardening. A toughness of the cardiac. Of the, the heart. A hardening of their hearts. Unbelief. That's what they're rebuked for. Matthew Henry addresses their unbelief saying. Owing not to any weakness or deficiency in the proofs. But to the hardness of their heart. It's senselessness and stupidity. Perhaps it was owing in part to the pride of their hearts. That they did not. For they thought. If indeed he be risen, to whom should he delight to do the honor of showing himself but to us? And then he makes the application. It will not suffice for an excuse of our infidelity in the great day of judgment to say, We did not see him after he was risen. For we ought to have believed the testimony of those who did see him. We will have no excuse all of the excuses will melt before you as you stand before the Lord on that day when it is appointed unto men to die once and face judgment. And then in verses 15 through 18, we have proclamation of the testimony with the command to proclaim in verse 15. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have a compact command here that is very similar to the one that we call the great commission in Matthew 28. There we read in verse 19, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age." Amen. So verse 15 in Mark 16 begins with go. It's an action. Hebrews 6:23 warns what many of us fall into, it says that you do not become sluggish. Are you sluggish? Are you sluggish when you have been commanded to go and bring the gospel? Are you sluggish with bringing glory to Christ and giving Him the honor, the thanks and the praise? Not simply here, this was glorious this morning, but will you do that in your place of work? Will you do that with your extended family when they're gathered and then they think you're a kook? Will you bring glory to God? Will you praise Him at every opportunity? It says, go into all the world. All the world. Enter to into every place on this planet. Leave no place unreached. Do we feel that responsibility that is there? Do we feel that responsibility enough to consider, may it be I, Lord that needs to go to leave sluggishness and enter in to a field of harvest somewhere. Perhaps your neighborhood. Perhaps South Wichita. Perhaps Mexico. Perhaps Nepal. Or the Middle East. Or China. Who knows? But go. Go. And what do you bring the gospel. Preach the good news of Jesus Christ. That men are in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We'll see that here in a moment. And then you preach it to every creature. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. In every location on this planet. Then we have the command's content in verse 16. The command's content. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Some of you begin to choke at that when you see that. Because what are we talking about here? Let me assure you that if you believe, you will be saved. That's what the scripture tells us. This is not a command that requires baptism to be saved. If you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. If you are baptized and do not believe... You will be condemned. If you believe, you will not be condemned. We can take our brother the thief on the cross. We can take probably many examples throughout history. Men believed baptism is important. It's very important. But let me see let me show you the parallel here in John 3:16 through 18. There as many of you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already. That's why we tell many people when we're down on the streets. When, when we have somebody that's that I first met and we're trying to explain the the depth, the importance of this most of the people you see here are walking dead men, biding time until they head into hell. If you do not believe, you are condemned already, and there's only one way out of that, and it's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not by being baptized. Acts 8, 9, 24. We read of Simon Magus. He was an influ- influential magician who believed and was baptized. The people were mesmerized by what he could do. But he came and saw what was going on and he believed and was baptized. In verse 18 we read here, when Simon saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone in whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't get it. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. He had been dutifully. Dutifully baptized. But have never truly believed. Calvin wrote. Baptism is joined. To the faith of the gospel. In order to inform us. That the mark of our salvation. Is graved on it. We must must hold. That it is not required. As absolutely necessary to salvation. So that all who have not obtained it. Must perish. For it is not added to faith. As it were the half. Of the cause of our salvation. But baptism is a testimony. Then we have the commands. Confirmation. The confirmation of the command. And these signs. Verse 17. Will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly. It will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. These scriptures have been misused by many cultic groups in doing things like snake handling and and intentionally drinking poison as part of their rituals or their testimonies. And that's not at all what these scriptures are saying. It says these signs will follow those who believe, not all signs in every follower. For God gives different gifts of His Spirit to different people at different necessary times for his glory this list of signs is also not exhaustive for example Paul he raised Eutychus from the dead after the poor boy fell asleep in an upper window and fell to his death in the street Paul was used by God to bring life to him or Ananias and Sapphira at an active time of the Holy Spirit died instantly before Peter because they lied to the Holy Spirit So where do you see these types of signs in verses 17 and 18 mentioned in Scripture? Here's a quick rundown in the Gospels and Acts. Mark 9 verse 30. There we have non-disciples actually exercising demons, casting out demons in Jesus' name. In Luke 10 verse 17, the 70 that Jesus sent out are delivering people from demons. Acts 5, 12 and 16. Acts 8, 5 through 8. Acts 16 and 19 There we have a plethora of accounts of the apostles healing and delivering from demons. Now, keep in mind that these signs would follow who? Who do these signs follow? This is to tempt you to wake up. Who do these signs follow? Those who believe. Those who believe. Without belief, these signs would not only be duplicated, but could be very dangerous. At this time in Acts chapter 19, consider there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They tried to exercise gifts that they did not have in the name of one. That they did not believe. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 28. 3 through 5. depicts the example of. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks. And laid them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat. And fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature. Hanging from his hand. They said to one another. No doubt this man is a murderer. Whom though he escaped the ski, yet justice is not allowed to live. But he shook off that creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. Now this is where you say, do not do this in the privacy of your own home. This is not a thing that is advising us or directing us on what to do. This is what happened. It's a descriptive of what was going on at that time. Jesus also gave this declaration in Luke chapter 10 verse 19 to the 70 who had been sent out in his name. They had returned with joy and he said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And I would imagine, I would believe that drinking anything deadly could be included here as nothing shall be able to hurt you. These were men that were sent by God specifically at that time with the gift of the Holy Spirit upon them to where they could proclaim the gospel where it had never been heard before at a time when the gospel was breaking into the, into the face of the earth. Then we close here with establishing the testimony. Establishing the testimony. First, establishing the authority of the king. Verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, to sit down, as we have talked about many times, indicates that Christ's high priestly work for his people was complete. He had come to seek and to save the lost, and now that victory was won. He is in victorious position. At the right hand of God. This is fulfillment of Daniel's vision. From Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14. It reads. I was watching in the night visions. And behold. One like the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That is our Savior Jesus. That is where He sits at the right hand of God that is reiterated throughout Scripture and particularly expressed in the book of Hebrews. There we read, When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand. Of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now this is the main point. Of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. Who is seated at the right hand. Of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That is the rightful glorious victorious position. Of our savior who was risen. From the dead. And then finally establishing the testimony of the king. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Acts 5 verse 12 says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Jesus was amongst them working mightily, and they were preaching everywhere, and it spread like wildfire. Precise obedience to Jesus' command By repentant and believing followers. It's demonstrated in verse 15. He said go. And they went out. He said preach the gospel. Then they preached the gospel everywhere. Romans 10 verse 18 says. But I say. Have they not heard? Yes indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. May you not see this as a haranguing. I hope. Or something beating you over the head. to You must go. You read this verse. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Do you not want to be included in that? Do you not want to be those among whom the word of God is being proclaimed throughout this earth? May God lead us through his word. As many have said, it has been a wonderful time through the book of Mark. If there are questions that you have this morning over some of these things, Please do not hesitate. Thankfully, we'll be here to have lunch together and and discuss some of that if you'd like to. But I pray that God will use you this week. That this be a time where the name of Christ will be proclaimed throughout this city, this county, and those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious word. Father, there are sometimes things here that are just so magnificent, so glorious that we can't really begin to see it as it is. This idea of you being seated, risen and seated at the right hand of God. What power, what majesty, what infinity. Father, expand our hearts and minds so that we will see you according to your word and glorify you and glory in your name. Please use my brothers and sisters this week as we go forth into this world in which you placed us. We have many praises this morning. But, but we have a catalog of things going on, of, of tragedies, of sin, of darkness. Lord, use us as bright lights in a dark world to bring glory to you. In your name we pray, amen.